When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Now, when we talk about psychopathy, a lot of times we think of the diagnosis that we see in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Antisocial Personality Disorder. Now, these two constructs, psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, are similar, and some would argue they're really the same thing, But I usually think of them as distinct, and I think the research supports this perspective fairly well. So we could think of psychopathy as having all the characteristics we would expect to see with antisocial personality disorder, plus characteristics from other domains, specifically interpersonal and affective domains. So in order to describe psychopathy, I'm going to compare it a bit to antisocial personality disorder, I'm also going to review the psychopathy checklist revised as another way of kind of explaining the differences we see with psychopathy. And I'm going to use the five-factor model. I'm going to describe the personality profile from the five-factor model that we see associated with psychopathy. So with these three different angles that I'm looking at with psychopathy, I hope this subject matter becomes more clear. So I'll start with antisocial personality disorder. Now, to understand antisocial personality disorder, of course, we look in the DSM. We see that there are seven symptom criteria and then three other criteria. So of the seven symptom criteria, three would have to be met. So here we see violating social norms, lying, impulsivity, irritability and aggression, disregarding other safety, irresponsibility, and lack of remorse. Those are the seven symptom criteria, and they would have to be present since the age of 15. Then we have the other criteria I mentioned. An individual has to be 18 years or older. Evidence of conduct disorder would have had to have been present before the age of 15. And the symptoms of antisocial personality disorder can't occur exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So we can see from this definition of antisocial personality disorder, it would be hard to conceptualize a presentation of psychopathy that didn't also qualify as antisocial personality disorder. And in fact, this is how we usually think of it. We think of psychopathy as a subset of antisocial personality disorder, so that almost all of individuals who had psychopathy 
would qualify for antisocial personality disorder, and a number of individuals with antisocial personality disorder would qualify for psychopathy, but not all of them. A number of the studies on antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy look at male criminal offenders in the prison population, and here we see that around 70 to 80 percent of those individuals qualify for a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, but only about 15 to 25 percent could be classified as having psychopathy. So with this idea that almost all individuals with psychopathy would qualify for antisocial personality disorder, where would the possible exceptions be? Are there any presentations of psychopathy that would not align with antisocial personality disorder? Well, when looking at the seven symptom criteria for antisocial personality disorder, it's difficult to imagine an instance of psychopathy that would not at least meet three of those seven symptom criteria. I suppose it's possible. Usually where we see the exceptions would be around the other criteria with antisocial personality disorder. For example, with psychopathy, there's no rule about being 18 years or older. Symptoms of conduct disorder would not have to have had been present before the age of 15. And there's no rule specifically about schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Even still, with these possible exceptions and the possible exceptions we could see around the symptom criteria, we usually don't think there would be many exceptions at all. So mostly everybody who would be classified as having psychopathy would also qualify for antisocial personality disorder. So what are these extra characteristics that we would see with psychopathy that we wouldn't necessarily see with antisocial personality disorder? Well, to answer this question, I'm going to take a look at this second way of describing psychopathy, and that's to review some of the features of a very popular instrument used to measure psychopathy, the Psychopathy Checklist Revised. Now, this instrument is a psychometric instrument, and it has four facets. Facet one is interpersonal, facet two, affective, facet three is lifestyle, and facet four, antisocial. So if we look at facet one, that's interpersonal, we see certain characteristics here that we would normally associate with psychopathy, including superficial charm, pathological lying, grandiosity, and being manipulative. So if we look at just this interpersonal facet from the PCLR, we see that really only the pathological lying has overlap with the definition of antisocial personality disorder in the DSM. Now looking at facet two, affective, we see characteristics like callousness, lack of remorse, shallow affect, and failure to accept responsibility. So here, of course, we see lack of remorse lines up with one of the symptom criterion in the definition for antisocial personality disorder. Now with factor three, this is lifestyle, and here we see irresponsibility, impulsivity, a need for stimulation, a lack of realistic goals, and what's referred to as a parasitic lifestyle. So here we see overlap with antisocial personality disorder in the area of irresponsibility and impulsivity. Facet four is antisocial. So here we see characteristics like early behavioral problems, poor behavioral control, and juvenile delinquency. So this facet lines up fairly well with the definition of antisocial personality disorder. Now the last perspective I'll use here to describe psychopathy is the five-factor model of personality. And we remember these big five traits through the acronym OCEAN, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So each of these five traits also contains six facets. And it's at the facet level 
that we can really understand someone's personality. So everyone has personality characteristics. The five-factor model is just one way of measuring those characteristics. And we see a particular five-factor model profile that aligns fairly well with psychopathy. But that doesn't mean that everybody who has psychopathy would have that profile, and it doesn't mean that everybody with that profile would have psychopathy. So I'll start here with openness to experience. Interestingly, openness to experience really doesn't seem to have a relationship with psychopathy, and it's the only trait in the five-factor model that doesn't. So next we move to conscientiousness. Now this one does have a particularly strong relationship with psychopathy. Now again, each of the traits would have six facets. All the six facets of conscientiousness tend to be lower in individuals who have psychopathy. So the six facets of conscientiousness are competence, order, dutifulness, achievement striving, self-discipline, and deliberation. So again, all those scores would tend to be lower. Now with extroversion, we only see two facets related to psychopathy, warmth and assertiveness. We see lower scores of warmth associated with psychopathy and higher levels of assertiveness. Now with agreeableness, we have kind of the same situation we saw with conscientiousness. All the facets are involved and all of them tend to have lower scores. So lower levels of trust, straightforwardness, altruism, compliance, modesty, and a facet referred to as tender-mindedness. So that brings us to the last trait, neuroticism. And here again, just like with extroversion, only two of the facets are involved. We see differences with anxiety and anger. Lower levels of anxiety and higher levels of anger are associated with psychopathy. Now a lot of times when we think of the word psychopathy, there is this idea that psychopathic traits are related to intelligence, meaning the more we see of psychopathy, the higher level of intelligence we see. And this goes back in the media, in terms of movies, television, and even early research into psychopathy and intelligence. So one of the difficulties here is that we don't really have a single agreed upon definition of psychopathy, and we don't have a single agreed upon definition of intelligence either. So let's take a look at the concept of psychopathy. So psychopathy can be understood in a number of different ways, and there are several different instruments that measure psychopathy. And a lot of our understanding really comes from how those instruments break down the construct of psychopathy. One of the most popular instruments is the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, and another popular instrument is the Psychopathic Personality Inventory Revised. So if we look at the PCLR, the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, we see that there are different number of factors depending on which version of the instrument we look at. One popular conceptualization is a two-factor model, and each of those factors may have one or two lower order factors. So if we look at factor one, we see interpersonal and affective traits, like superficial charm, callousness, being egocentric, if we look at factor two, this is where we see antisocial behavior and sometimes lifestyle. So here we'd see irresponsibility, impulsivity, and violating society's norms. So largely thought of as criminality. Now a lot of times, of course, when we think of psychopathy, we also think of antisocial personality disorder. That's an official diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's a cluster B personality disorder. The factor two, 
that we see with psychopathy would be more closely related to antisocial personality disorder than the factor one. Sometimes factor one is even conceptualized as being helpful in some ways. So a lot of times we think of psychopathy overall as destructive and related to criminality, but it really depends on which traits someone has. Another instrument was the psychopathic personality inventory revised. And here we also see two factors, although there is a third factor which isn't used as much. The first two factors would be fearless dominance and self-centered impulsivity. Roughly speaking, fearless dominance lines up with factor one that I talked about before, except you also see characteristics like stress immunity, social boldness, and physical fearlessness. So not being afraid of being physically harmed. Now, self-centered impulsiveness is similar to that factor two. We saw antisocial behavior and lifestyle. We see recklessness, the tendency to exploit others, aggression, hostility, and impulsivity. Of course, impulsivity we also see with factor two. The third factor I mentioned that we don't really use too often, it's not necessarily strongly aligned with psychopathy, is the cold-heartedness factor. And usually that's thought of as separate. And here we see lack of empathy, lack of remorse, lovelessness, and guiltlessness. So as you can see, psychopathy is a fairly complex construct. So understanding and measuring psychopathy is different, and of course understanding and measuring intelligence is different. So I mentioned earlier that there is this relationship in the popular culture between psychopathy and intelligence. We see it in the movies and television. There's anecdotal evidence to support it. We know from the early research this idea was supported. We also know that with some of this research, of course, there were non-representative samples. So individuals were selected because they were particularly interesting to the researcher. And a lot of times those individuals, of course, would be more intelligent. So there was a bias in terms of who was measured. And of course, there was a bias in terms of how they were measured. Now, in more recent research, we see mixed results here with psychopathy and intelligence. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. And one of the studies I'll be using to describe this is a study published in 2016 by Watts and colleagues, where they specifically looked at this question of psychopathy and intelligence, and they also looked at this idea of intelligence as a protective factor in psychopathy, specifically against committing violent crimes. So looking back at research that occurred before this for a moment, we do see mixed results, as I mentioned. Some studies show that there is a positive relationship between psychopathy 
and intelligence. Some studies show that there's no relationship, and other studies actually show that psychopathy is associated with less intelligence. Now, one of the popular findings in a few studies has been that the interpersonal traits from factor one are associated with higher intelligence, and the affective traits from factor one are associated with lower intelligence. Now, looking at the results from this study, what they found here was that there is no relationship between psychopathy and intelligence. So very consistent with the mixed results that we've seen before. They did find some small levels of significance and effect size for certain types of intelligence and certain traits of psychopathy, but really not anything of note. Now with the protective factor question, which is this idea that intelligence is a protective factor for individuals with psychopathy, so it can prevent some of the antisocial behaviors. Here they found for the fearless dominance factor, I mentioned before, that intelligence may help. Intelligence may actually be a protective factor with fearless dominance. But with self-centered impulsivity, higher intelligence actually puts the individual at more risk for antisocial behavior. So we even have mixed results in terms of the protective factor finding. It's not really clear overall with psychopathy if intelligence is in fact a protective factor. So a lot of times in research, there's this bias where there's this idea that we want to find statistically significant findings with large effect sizes. We want to establish relationships between constructs. But research that shows that there is no relationship between constructs is really just as important. So a study like this, where no relationship is found, still adds to our knowledge. It still improves our understanding of psychopathy and intelligence. Now we talk about the construct of psychopathy. We are talking about a construct that is fairly similar to the mental disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and we see this in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And actually psychopathy is similar to all of the cluster B personality disorders. So antisocial, narcissistic, and to a lesser extent is associated with borderline and histrionic personality disorders. So the way we could think of these two constructs psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder would be that antisocial personality disorder is defined mostly based on behaviors. And psychopathy is defined partially on behaviors, but it also adds this interpersonal component. So the way these two constructs are measured is a bit different, and the way they're used in the research is a bit different. Usually the way we think about them is that most everyone who has psychopathy would also qualify for antisocial personality disorder. Not all, but most. But only some individuals with antisocial personality disorder would also qualify as having psychopathy. Now, when we look at the construct of psychopathy a little more closely, we see that it can be divided into two major types. And that's what I'm really talking about here in today's video, primary versus secondary psychopathy. Now, a lot of times with primary psychopathy, this term can be synonymous with the term psychopathy. So a lot of times when individuals in research say psychopathy, they really mean primary psychopathy. Secondary psychopathy is sometimes referred to as sociopathy. Now this term sociopathy is not very common in the research literature anymore, but it really does have the strongest relationship with this construct of secondary psychopathy. So this can become a bit confusing because when you hear the term psychopathy, it's not really clear if it's referring to the entire construct or just primary psychopathy. And additionally, sometimes when individuals use sociopathy, they're really talking about psychopathy as opposed to just secondary psychopathy. 
So there's a lot of confusion around these terms, psychopathy, sociopathy, primary and secondary psychopathy, and their usage. So it's important to really understand the distinctions between them. So when we look at primary psychopathy, we know there are certain characteristics associated with it. Being unemotional, callous, manipulative, calculating, having little or no fear, guilt, remorse, empathy, or anxiety. We also tend to think of primary psychopathy as having an etiology, that is, it's caused by genetic influences more so than environmental influences. Also, psychopathy has a fairly strong association with antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. Now, when we talk about secondary psychopathy or sociopathy, we see a different set of characteristics. Sometimes secondary psychopathy is referred to by this term antisocial deviance. So really, secondary psychopathy is more associated with criminal behavior than is primary psychopathy. We also see a number of other characteristics, like being rash, impulsive, emotional, anxious, hostile, aggressive, volatile, and self-destructive. Individuals with secondary psychopathy also tend to be more disorganized and tend to have a risky decision-making style when compared to individuals with primary psychopathy. Now, in terms of the experience of fear and remorse, individuals with secondary psychopathy can experience those emotions more so than we see with primary psychopathy. But experiencing emotions with secondary psychopathy is really related to emotional dysregulation. There's a lot of difficulty managing emotions with secondary psychopathy. We don't really see that with primary psychopathy. Now, as I mentioned, when we think of primary psychopathy, in terms of etiology, we often think of a genetic etiology, genetic causes. With secondary psychopathy, we tend to think that the etiology is based more in the environment. So generally, we would say that individuals with primary psychopathy were born that way, and individuals with secondary psychopathy develop these different characteristics because of environmental stressors. Now, secondary psychopathy also has a fairly strong relationship to antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. But the interesting relationship here that separates it from primary psychopathy is that an individual with secondary psychopathy is more likely to meet the full criteria for borderline personality disorder than an individual with primary psychopathy. Another way we can think of this difference between primary and secondary psychopathy is around the ability to experience emotions. With primary psychopathy, we see an emotional deficit. Individuals, again, have difficulty experiencing fear, remorse, and some would argue even feeling love. With secondary psychopathy, it's more of an emotional disturbance. So it's really deficit versus disturbance. Another interesting area where we can draw a distinction between primary and secondary psychopathy is the area of empathy. And there's been a lot of research on empathy as it relates to psychopathy. One of the interesting findings here is that cognitive empathy, the ability to understand the emotions of other people, is intact with both primary and secondary psychopathy. The difference really becomes around this construct of affective empathy, being able to feel what someone else feels. Now again, when we conceptualize primary psychopathy, we look at this term as having an association with an inability to experience emotions, so it would make sense that affective empathy would be decreased. But interestingly, there are two different theories with primary psychopathy. The one theory is that there is no empathy, as I mentioned, so affective empathy is compromised. But the other theory is there's no concern. 
So the affective empathy is in place, but individuals of primary psychopathy don't have a concern around how people feel. So there are two different theories there, and we really don't have a clear idea of which one is correct, or there may be another theory that explains how empathy works that we don't know about yet. Now with secondary psychopathy, it's a little different in terms of affective empathy. Here we believe that individuals with secondary psychopathy do have the ability to empathize affectively. However, emotional dysregulation interferes with the use of that ability. So when they try to use their empathy skills, their affective empathy skills, they end up demonstrating emotions of their own like hostility and aggression. And this gets in the way of experiencing that empathy. Even though we draw a number of distinctions between primary and secondary psychopathy, it's important to remember that all these characteristics do appear on a continuum. Now often, psychopathy is treated as one construct, but really some of the characteristics are quite different, particularly at the extremes where we can clearly distinguish primary from secondary psychopathy. So when treating or studying psychopathy, it's important we keep the differences between primary and secondary psychopathy in mind. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.